If you have a Bible, you might like to turn to Philippians chapter 4, because I'm going to read from there in just a moment. If you've been regularly with us in the last uh, couple of weeks or so, you'll know we started a series in Philippians, and we're going to continue with that today. As we wrestle with all that's going on, and maybe the anxiety that that brings. So today I have some stories for you, and my hope is that you will find maybe one of these stories helpful. Today we will reflect on some scripture together, and I hope that you will find some of that helpful. I'm going to begin by reading these challenging words from Philippians chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What I want or hope that you remember most, if sermons indeed are about remembering anything, is one simple truth that you might choose to dwell on from this morning. Friends, if you remember nothing else from this morning, I would encourage you to remember this. God has it. God has it. Story number one. Now at the end of the last talk, at the beginning of September, I read you a story because I think that's what we might be doing and thinking about and what is vital to living well in this challenging time. I make no apology about reading it again. There was once a town in the high Alps that straddled the banks of a beautiful stream. The stream was fed by springs that were as old as the earth and as deep as the sea. The water was clear like crystal. Children laughed and played beside it. Swans and geese swam on it. You could see the rocks and the sand and the rainbow trout that swarmed at the bottom of the stream. High in the hills, far beyond anyone's sight, lived an old man who served as the keeper of the stream. He had been hired so long ago that no one could remember a time when he wasn't there. He would travel from one spring to another in the hills, removing branches or fallen leaves or debris that might pollute the water, but his work was unseen. One year, the town council decided they had better things to do with their money. No one supervised the old man anyway. They had roads to repair and taxes to collect and services to offer and giving money to an unseen stream cleaner had become a luxury they could no longer afford. So the old man left his post. High in the mountains, the springs went unattended. Twigs and branches and worse muddied the liquid flow. Mud and silt compacted the creek bed. Farm wastes turned part of the stream into stagnant bogs. From time to time, No, sorry, for a time, no one in the village noticed. But after a while, the stream was not the same. 
It began to look brackish. The swans flew away to live elsewhere. The water no longer had a crisp scent that drew children to play by it. Some people in the town began to grow ill. All noticed the loss of sparkling beauty that used to flow between the banks of the stream that fed the town. The life of the village depended on the stream, and the life of the stream depended on the keeper. The city council reconvened, the money was found, and the old man was rehired. After yet another time, the springs were cleaned, the stream was pure, children played again on its banks, illness was replaced by health, the swans came home, and the village came back to life. The village, the life of the village, depended on the stream. The stream is your soul, and you are the keeper. Here's what I'm thinking. Paul tells us to be anxious for nothing. The truth is that there are lots of things that clog up our lives, and like the town, when that happens, we can suffer. Paul, I think, gives us some help in how we might keep the stream clear so that we might live well. Now, we know only too well the things that life can throw at us, the things that might clog up the stream. A pandemic, a divorce, a death, financial insecurity, no job, challenging children, challenging parents, health concerns. Paul won't and does not tell us that these things won't happen. But he does help us to navigate them well. Now, by the time Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, he knows what life can bring. If anyone did, Paul had many reasons to be anxious. Paul writes his letter from a Roman prison, his fate uncertain, a possible death sentence awaiting him. He is now around 60 years old, and he has been a follower of Christ for 30 of those years. He has traveled all around the Mediterranean coast, visiting most seaports at some point. He is hunched from his travels and his many beatings. He has been given 30 lashes on at least five different occasions. He has been beaten with rods on three separate occasions. On one occasion, he was beaten and literally left for dead. He has been shipwrecked, survived storms, been abandoned by his friends and his co-workers. And from his letter to the Galatians, we know he may well by now be almost blind. He now lives in the time when Nero kills Christians to win favor with the Romans. And Paul is in a Roman prison, the best known of all Christians. And yet, and yet, Paul is able to write to the believers in Philippi, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Paul tells them not to be anxious, but to rejoice. It begs the question, what does Paul really mean and what is he really doing here? Paul uses the present continuous tense when he says rejoice. It means he is saying, go on rejoicing. Make a habit of rejoicing. And he says, do it always. 
always, that's a bit tough, isn't it? Sometimes would be more realistic, don't you think? When things are going well, would be even better, wouldn't it? But Paul says, always rejoice in the Lord, always. And then just to make the point, he says, again I say, rejoice. So what is Paul saying? Well, Paul is not saying that we must be happy all the time. That's impossible, and he's not saying that. Paul is not here talking about creating or manufacturing a feeling or emotion that enables us to be happy or rejoice. He's not asking us to conjure something up. Paul is inviting us to hold a conviction and a confidence that God exists, that he is sovereign, and that he is good. Just let that sink in for a moment. Paul is inviting us to hold a conviction and a confidence that God exists, that he is sovereign, and that he is good. You maybe could say that Paul is inviting us to a vital optimism about God. John Ortberg says this about vital optimism. Vital optimism is the confident expectation that an all-powerful God is at work, even in this fallen world, to redeem it and to bring good out of it. It is also the confident expectation that this good and powerful God is intimately aware and deeply concerned about my life, my future, and the role he wants me to play in this world, which means that I can face today with a resilient confidence and unshakable poise, not because things will work out for me, but because an all-powerful, all-good God is at work. Paul invites us to rejoice in the Lord. What we believe about God is absolutely critical. Story number two. I think this story might help us understand what Paul might be driving at. It was a pristine winter day with the sun glistening off the newly fallen snow. I had been flying for about an hour and was turning my Cessna 172 for final approach to runway 24 at Palwaukee Municipal Airport north of Chicago. I could tell that my instructor was pleased. Though relatively new at it, I was getting a feel for flying. Moments later, I made what I thought was to be a nearly perfect landing. Without comment on my landing, my instructor spoke up. It's time to go under the hood. Yes, you're definitely ready for a time under the hood. I wasn't sure to what he was referring. My first thought was that he was going to show me the plane's engine. I asked him what he meant. He reached around behind me and pulled out a strange-looking device. We're going to take off as usual and head north, away from the O'Hare traffic. Once we get to 5,000 feet and 40 miles from trouble, you're going to put this thing on and fly the plane. The device was designed to fit like a baseball cap, but had a large shield that allowed the pilot to see only his instruments. I followed his instructions and flew out over Illinois-Wisconsin state line. 
Once we were in the desired location and at the right altitude, he turned to me and said, okay, put this on. When you do, you will not be able to see outside the plane. You will only see the controls and your instruments. Here's what I want you to remember. No matter what, trust your instruments, not your feelings. He then took control of the plane and began to make all sorts of maneuvers. Without any ability to look out of the window and to see the horizon or the ground, I became disoriented. I really wasn't sure if we were turning, climbing or descending. He began to instruct me what to do next. Imagine you have just flown into a cloud or are trying to land in the fog. Without outside reference points, you will feel like you feel right now, disoriented. When, what you need to remember is to trust your instruments, not your feelings. After several minutes of flying under the hood, it became apparent how important his admonition truly was. Everything in my body said I was level in flight, but the artificial horizon, the instrument that tells the pilot the orientation of his wings to the horizon, indicated that I was in a turn and descending. If you don't trust your instruments, you will enter what is known as the dead man's spiral and crash. What's worse, you'll never know what hit you. That is why you must trust your instruments and not your feelings, warned my instructor. Tragically, that is probably what happened to John F. Kennedy Jr. on the 16th of July, 1999. John and his wife and sister-in-law were flying from New Jersey. I sent like American then, didn't I? <laughs> New Jersey Martha's, to Martha's Vineyard when the plane he was flying crashed into the sea. Two hours before his flight, Kennedy had gotten a weather forecast from the internet, but it offered no caution that the haze that hung over his route could obscure a pilot's vision of the horizon. The forecast called for good visual flying conditions with visibility of six to eight miles. It is likely that Kennedy became disorientated as he flew over the ocean on a nearly moonless night in a thick haze. Kennedy's Piper Saratoga made a series of meandering turns as it tried to approach the airport at Martha's Vineyard. At 9.41 p.m. it crashed into the Atlantic Ocean. The NTSB report later revealed that the wreckage of Kennedy's single engine showed no evidence of fire, no in-flight breakup, and no engine or mechanical problems. Their conclusion, pilot error. Mostly, we want to overcome our anxiety and our worry and our concerns, and mostly, we want to take control of the situation. Taking control makes us feel better. We want certainty. Mostly, though, control eludes us, because in truth, control is not ours to take. Here's the truth. We can't run the world or control it, but we can entrust it to God. Paul trusted himself and his circumstances to God. He writes from a Roman prison facing a possible death sentence. But he writes this from chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result... It has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains 
for Christ. He goes on to write this in verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of that, I rejoice. Paul could fly under the hood. Why? Because he had entrusted the world to an all-powerful, all-good God. What you believe about God is vital. I am fascinated by the story of Job. And if anyone knew and understood the trauma and the tragedy of life, surely Job did. He lost everything except his life and his wife, and his wife suggested that he should curse God for taking it all away. Job endured suffering on a deep and profound level. And some of us know what that's like, don't we? The prevailing wisdom of the day in Job's time was that if you suffer, you must have sinned. Job's friends repeatedly told him so. Job wrestled with that, but he could see no truth in it. Job cried out, but God remained silent. When finally God did enter the conversation, what he says is extraordinary. He gives no answers to Job's questions, but what he does is he takes Job on a tour of the universe to give Job a glimpse of who he is, who it is that holds Job. Now, I choose to read God's response as a gentle, loving rebuke from a doting father to a struggling child. In his love, God takes Job on a tour of the universe to show him what kind of God he is. And he starts in chapter 38, verse 4, with how the universe began. These are my words. Job, he asks excitedly, what do you know about that? What do you know about starting the world? Fantastic, isn't it? He points out that the angels were so impressed with God's creativity that they all shouted for joy and that all the stars sang together. Job, what do you know about that? In the rest of chapter 38, God reveals to Job the wonderful creativity in all that he has made. At the same time, and with great love, God is showing Job just how impossible it is for him, a finite human being, to grasp the complexity of the universe. In chapter 39, God shows Job how much he delights in his creation. You should go read chapter 39 sometime. It's great. He gives him an insight into the love that is at the center of the universe. For example, God shows Job the ostrich and other animals he's made. These animals have no strategic value to God. They offer God nothing. But he tells Job the ostrich is in fact particularly stupid because the ostrich lays eggs where they can easily be crushed and doesn't figure it out. But God delights in his creation because that's the kind of person he is. They bring him great joy. Why would God create a world like this? One commentator says this, because God loves pizzazz. Because he revels in the beauty and delight and the joy of the least strategic creature that will never do him any good. He just loves to give. 
What is revealed to Job on his tour of the universe is a God who is endlessly good, uncontrollably generous, and irrationally loving. God has no need or desire to defend himself before Job because as he shows Job around the universe, his nature simply flows out and floods over Job. And ultimately, Job's response to God is to say, God is enough. What do you believe about God, friends? What do you believe about God? What you believe about God is vital for how you will be able to navigate your way through life. Paul invites us, in fact, he urges us to entrust ourselves to the sovereignty of God. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's what Paul did. The truth that Paul is inviting us to is that the more we are able to say God is enough, the less hold anxiety can have over us. The more we are able to entrust ourselves to God, the less hold anxiety can have over us. Maybe in a different way of saying it, Paul is inviting us to know that to rejoice in the Lord always helps us to keep the stream unclogged and the water fresh. Story number three. I hope this is helpful. There is a film called The Bear. You may have seen it. It's about a tiny bear cub whose mother tragically dies. Its chances of survival are nil, and everybody watching knows that. But the unexpected happens, and it is adopted by an enormous Kodiak bear. The giant bear is always watching over the cub, and they do everything together. The Kodiak protects the young cub and teaches him how to be a bear. It looks like the cub's future is assured. One day they get separated and the cub cannot see his father anywhere. A mountain lion sees his opportunity, a young, unprotected cub. The mountain lion is about to spring when the cub does what he's seen his father do and he rears up on his hind legs and growls. But his attempt to scare the mountain lion is feeble and everyone watching knows the cub will not survive the coming attack. The camera focuses on the face of the mountain lion whose face suddenly shows a look of intense fear. It pauses and then unexpectedly slinks away. The cub wonders if his growl actually did work. But as the camera pans back, we see what the cub did not know and could not see. Behind the cub is the great Kodiak standing on his hind legs, his massive body poised to save his son. In truth, the little cub had nothing to worry about because even though he couldn't see him or hear him, his father was there all the time. His father could be trusted even when he seemed to be absent. Paul invites us to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, he says, rejoice because God has it. God 
has it. Amen.